Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Plus Four podcast, exploring the big wide world of Hickory Golf. I'm your host, Rob Berman. Episodes of this podcast reflect the personalities, the passion, and the pursuit of the game as it was played in the pre-1935 era across the world. Please subscribe and hit the like button to help us build our network of golfing fans coordinated in the United States through the Society of Hickory Golfers. And visit us online at plus4.org. Kelly, let's start with uh, your backstory. First of all, how old are you? 52. And are you a native Canadian? Oh, yeah. 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 I've been here all my life. Are you living now close to where you grew up? We, I'm in Manitoba, mm-hmm. but I'm in uh, just outside Winnipeg, Manitoba. I grew up in a little town called Hazel Ridge, mm-hmm. Hazel Ridge, Manitoba. The welcome sign into the town had a population that varied from double digits <laughs> to just over a hundred and, uh-huh. and then it would be scratched out and you know so very small town uh there were a lot of little towns bigger towns around us but it was a it was a country environment that i grew up in did you grow up playing hockey i did yeah up until uh high school tell, tell me just a little bit about your parents were they into golf at all or how did that how did you get into golf uh mom and dad weren't into golf they both worked dad has a, a construction business and mom used to work at the school uh at school division mm-hmm. my baba my grandmother she used to work at a, a club here in uh in outside the city Elmhurst Golf and Country Club. It was a Donald Ross design. Oh. And there's another one right across the road to it that is Pine Ridge. And that's another Donald Ross design. So I had the privilege of working at Elmhurst uh, when I was 16 years old. But well before that, my Baba was the head chef there. Mm. And she, uh, she bought me my first set of golf clubs from the head pro. And I used, there were the uh, Jack Nicholas uh, Golden Bear mm-hmm. clubs. And uh, yeah, so I started uh, swinging those. And actually prior to that, there happened to be a wooden shafted club at home. Never had a grip. It actually, I think it just had like a straight dowel, on, you know, connecting the head to the, to the shaft. And I used to hit that thing. Um, it, it flew out of my hands a couple times, almost went through the kitchen window. But that's how I kind of got my start playing golf and the hickory hickory scene was non-existent. I, it wasn't even on, never mind the radar. Yeah. It was in another universe at that time. So is it existent there now? Is there uh, much hickory stuff at all up there? Not much. Yeah. It is tough. Um, I'm trying to, you know, spread, spread the word. And uh, I have, I have the equipment I have the balls. I, I have a lot of the, I have everything that they need. It, it, it's just, it's a tough thing. My summer, my summers are full of work. We're mm-hmm. in the construction business. We're building roads, moving dirt during the summer. It, it's just not a good, for, for a, a, a province like Manitoba, where you have a kind of a six month summer, six months winter kind of thing. When you're working, it's hard to it's hard to do more because a lot of yeah. times we're working six days a week and long and the days are long by the sure. time you get yeah so but I'm, I'm, tr- I'm trying 
I think Alberta has a fairly good hickory scene, don't they? The big they have a big tournament in August up there, I think. Alberta is is good. Ontario is probably better. Uh-huh. The guys who put stuff together and have dedicated years of their life to unite the hickory uh, the hickory players, man, they they they're owed a lot because it's not easy work. Yeah. And you know, I build this stuff. I love building it. So then when I can't build it, I, I, I try to spread it and, but I'd lo- I love building. So where do you, you know, you gotta, it's like, do you want to kill? Do you want to play golf tomorrow? I'm in the shop, I'm working on something and I'm having a blast. And I'm like, I don't know. I kind of, yeah, I kind of like to keep working in the shop, but yeah. I don't get to play much anymore during the summers. So when I do get the opportunity, I'll either take the, the gutty clubs out or the modern hickories and, Mm-hmm. just you know take it for a walk so your uh, club making is definitely a secondary income for you you don't depend on that that's right yeah. yeah gotcha and so i read that you started making cigar humidors is that true well that was a long that was well i was still living at home not married and uh i i just got into working with wood and uh you know mm-hmm. building a box was probably where most people start just build a box but then building a normal yes a plain old box is not that exciting so you build a humidor which is a kind of a fancier box and then you learn about the spanish cedar and Mm -hmm. humidification systems and keeping the cigars at the right humidity the right temperature so i had a lot of fun with that i didn't sell too many um but you know, it was a it was a great stepping stone to the next um, you know to the next level. So how did the how did the golf club affection start? <laughs> I love golf. I've I've i played golf from a young from a young age. So I've I've always loved golf. I probably loved it more back then than I do right now. Sure. But I still really like golf. I came. I I was home one afternoon and I I was on the computer. And uh, I was Googling something and it had nothing to do with Hickory Golf Club. Believe me, at that point, Hickory Golf Clubs weren't on my mind. Yeah. And I was Googling something. And oddly enough, a page from Jeff Ellis's book was one of the first on the Google search. And I clicked on it and it happened to be uh, Hugh Philp. Mm -hmm. So, So it had about six or seven clubs. I read the article. I fell in love with the the clubs. I mean, they were just gorgeous, and they and they, they were the pictures were terrible, right? They, they but just the shape. Yeah. And believe it or not, uh, after seeing that, I just took a mental image, a picture in my head, and walked out my house door right into my shop door, and I started attempting to build one. And it, it just hasn't stopped since, I think, 2005. Wow. It just kept going. We'll get to the details of building a club a little later. The thing that has kept me from trying to build a club is the idea of the scare neck and the angle and not understanding how to precisely put that in the right place. Because mm-hmm. I suppose if you're wrong, you get a club that's too upright or too flat. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, that's... You're, I, I made my share of uh, two, uh, 
too flat a putter and uh -huh. too upright a club. It, it, it's a matter of just setting your mind. You lay something out. You find an angle that that looks right, and you go with it. Yeah. And if it's got to be tweaked one way or the other, the next club you do just that, right? right. You, you learn so much from the last club you just built. And I might be into it 400 clubs now, and it, that still that still goes on. Yeah, that is incredible. And uh, Kelly, you make all of the club, don't you? You make the shaft as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 We'll talk about that in a few little bit. So you tried. The, to make that club, have you saved that club? Do you still have it? <laughs> I have that club. Uh, not too many people get to see it because yeah. it is a. <laughs> it, it is not a. There's well, you know what? It it, it it shows you where it shows you where you started. Yeah. And yeah. and I think that and and I, I mean I don't have to look at that club. I can basically I could sketch you a picture of it. I haven't seen it for years, but it is in my shop and I am yeah. keeping it. I did hit it and it it stayed together <laughs> yeah but i didn't hit it i didn't hit it hard but i hit it with a uh, uh with a with a modern day golf ball and it yeah. stayed together so i was pretty proud of that but the uh from that day uh, forward i just seen more pictures the actual shape and size of the club and it it led me down you know to to where i am right now yeah where yeah everything I don't need a template to build a golf club. I hardly need a measuring tape or, it, you know, I mean, it's just, it's all by eye and by feel. Yeah, that's cool. Did you know what kind of glue and stuff to use on that first club? How did you put the scare joint together on that first club? Yeah, well, it being wood on wood, uh, there was a, there's a few options that mm -hmm. you have. You, your first option as a, um, as say a, a woodworker would be just a car, a yellow glue, you, right. you know, uh, epoxy. I had epoxy in the shop and I, I used epoxy, but as I progressed, epoxy wasn't around back then. So I gave up the use of epoxy. Plus if you do epoxy something and you have to kind of take it apart, epoxy gonna, <laughs> it's going to be difficult Right. with the yellow glue. You know, you can get some heat on there and, you know, you can lift it. So uh, I've had a, I've had great success with the, with the yellow, uh, with the yellow glue. And um, again, like you mentioned, the, um, the CA glue, a mm -hmm. lot of times, if you see something developing, you can, you can hit it with the CA glue, the ultra thin and, you know, hit it multiple times, let it fill that void. And from talking with other golfers, they say that that's, uh, you know, that's ready to go out and use again. Absolutely. So, yeah. yeah. So with, with the club that I have that you made that I bought in 2010, I think, or 2015, actually, yeah. um, I played this club with a, a couple of Carrick irons and some very early Forgan irons and uh, Peter Paxton clubs. Yeah. And when I get clubs of that date, let's say early 1890s or earlier, mm -hmm. I don't take the pins out, but I do put liquid CA down through the hosel. And it has held perfectly since 2015. Really? Uh, when, I, when I play gutty golf, there hasn't, there hasn't been a single change in my club since then. 
using ultra thin CA and letting it drip down into the hosel. It's worked wow. perfectly and it keeps the patina and the original state of the club in, intact, you know. It does, yeah, yeah. Well, once you pull the pin, once you pop the pin out, then uh, you gotta be a magician to file that pin without nicking the hosel. Yeah, that's it's, the hard part. It yeah. is the hard part, so that's a good uh, good tip. Yeah, it's worked really well. And they've held up beautifully. And Excellent. you know, I, pl- I play my gutty clubs probably six or seven times a year. I don't play them regularly, but. Yeah. Uh, I take them out in the summers and play them as much as I can. Nice. So the club that I bought, as we discussed before we started recording, is numbered. Do you number all of your clubs? Yes, I do. Uh, even from the early, early days. Mm-hmm. Never, never did I think that I was uh, like your club, uh, BR1, right? I think it was we, we, uh, a brassy uh, right-handed one. I will use the last, uh, uh, the 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 first letter and the last initial. So if I'm going to do a Willie Dunn, uh, d- depending on what club it is, I might go WD. So I know it's a Willie Dunn. Then when I go to post it on my website, it's a lot easier. I put yeah. it in the Willie Dunn collection. Yeah. And then if it's a short spoon, we'll just go S. Long spoon, we'll go L. Baff, baffing, B, you know. And then a number. Is it the first club, the 10th club? But you only have so much room. Yeah. on the butt end of the shaft <laughs> so uh, you can only get so much information and i did shrink down my um, my lettering to i believe it's the one eighth of an inch mm-hmm. so i can i can squeeze it on there a little bit better but uh, i guess you know you're always gonna cross when i cross the path where i'm like uh, well, what do i do now I'll, well i'll have to figure something out yeah so let's say you walked into the museum in saint andrews right mm-hmm. do you think you could tell the difference just with your eyes between, let's say, a, a Forgan long nose and a, a Philp? That's a good question. Uh, we've talked about this many times. We've actually done this many times, me and a friend. Mm-hmm. And yes, you, you can. There, there's, there's a lot of characteristics in a Philp club that are easily to, easy to spot, but then I'm not a historian, but I, I believe Robert Forgan mm-hmm. worked under Hugh Phil. That's true. Okay. So Robert Forgan, you know, he, you know, he takes Philp's design a little bit and, you know, he changes it a little bit, but there is a bit of a, a melding of the two, you know, the two characteristics. So there are some clubs that are, you you can you can be right, but you can be wrong, right? Yeah, yes, I that, understand. Look, yeah, that should be that could be a Philp, that could be a, a McEwen, but it's not. But it's some. It was made by somebody who either uh, apprenticed underneath them, right? So, uh, but there are some care. There are some like Willie Dunn. I, I love Willie Dunn. I, I I just building his clubs. They just they just. They're just so much fun to build. Um, but Willie Dunn's clubs do have a definite fingerprint uh, mm-hmm. that does stand out. I would think that the Philps are elegant. If, if there's one word that describes those clubs that I've seen, that's the word I would use. Yeah. So how would you talk about a Willie Dunn shape? What's characteristic about a Willie Dunn club? Willie Dunn, when the when the toe of the coming off the toe, so the point of the the point of the toe 
but you're coming around to the back weight too, so the back of the mm -hmm. club. Uh, instead of having a bulbous or rather rounded curve, the uh, Willie Dunn, he, he seems to go on a very sharp angle. So almost like picture the, the, the a clock and then it being at, at high noon and then that the, the hand is going around. Okay, it's making a kind of a full, like a, a, a circular. Yeah, yeah. Well, Willie kind of, it's, I, I often joke about the, the old club makers, and I often say that I think Willie was working late under candlelight one night, and he was, he was going, and, you know, I've done this sometimes too. It's late, and you're going, and I think he might have just took off a little bit too much off the toe, and he, well, then he had to sort of blend everything in. It's a good, it's a good look. I, I, I love the different, uh, I love it that they're not like a cookie cut, like all the right. club makers, they're not cookie cutter uh, club shapes um, because that would be, that would be pretty boring. I mean, yeah. I there are some that you really like to build. I love to build them all, but some you really get excited about, eh? but they're, they're, they're all unique in their own little way, but you, sometimes you need a, a very keen eye to, to spot the differences. And have you been able to actually get your hands on original long noses of most of these makers? Actually only one, uh -huh. uh, one many, and I, and I wish it would have happened a little bit later, but it happened really early in my building. Uh, it, it was a club that I couldn't, I couldn't imagine being hit because it was it was so delicate and so so tiny. Mm -hmm. um, but we we attempt I attempted to make uh, a bunch of uh, for some gentlemen up in Ohio and the actually the clubs ended up breaking, mm -hmm. which was sad but was part of the learning. Sure. Uh, part of the learning and they they just they they were very slender like yeah. extremely so you. Uh, you have to watch how you cut your lead cavity yeah. at that one point where it's it's its narrowest. I probably went a little bit too deep and uh, disaster was just around the corner. Yeah, and the more slender, probably it was a feathery club. This was a gutty club. The fact that it was in, it was in really nice condition. I often believe that the clubs that are in the nicest condition, they're the ones that were hit very very rare rarely yes. right yeah yeah and, and this one this one was and this one probably i don't think this club was very hittable in the first place like that the shaft on it had a had a waggle that i mean just with a just with no effort that that right. shaft is displacing two inches both ways you know so in a full swing uh i, I wouldn't i wouldn't trust it but so we've i don't remember that exact width and length of the club but I know that I'm doing some clubs that are along the same lines as that. They're very, very dainty clubs. Right. I think, I think you have to be very careful when you're doing those. Nowadays, the swing weights, everybody's a little bit bigger, a little bit stronger. And, and we're used to swinging modern, you know, graphite and steel. So when you don't have that, like you did back in the 1800s, you're swinging wood, you're swinging it accordingly. Yeah. Well, we've, we've sort of, it's like coming off of the Indianapolis Speedway, driving home, right? I mean, it's be such a, such a, uh, such a difference. 
that these clubs were probably weighted, they were very light. They were probably in the B range. There was a lot of wood. There wasn't a lot of wood for the club, but there wasn't a lot of wood taken out to put the lead in. And, right, right. you know, that's why you probably do find a lot of the lighter golf clubs um, uh, that are still in good shape, not really playable. Right. But they're uh, because they, they, they weren't hit. They yeah, were, they survived. They survived. Yep. Alan Robertson, who's always been one of my favorite golfers, uh, was said to have played with extremely lightweight clubs. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't very tall. He was a small person. That's the one thing I would love to go see is how on earth he got around St. Andrews and was so dominant. And there's a dealer in Pinehurst who claims to have one of his woods because the Alan notched out uh, lines on the back of his shaft under the, under the uh, grip. Yeah. And there's a dealer in Pinehurst that has one and he let me hold it, but it's, you know, probably a B weight, very, very lightweight. It would have been fascinating to watch him go around, you know. Uh, and you, you that, that, would, that would have been feathery era, right? Right. And uh, so the lightness of the club would probably have been more beneficial. Right. I, I've hit some replica featheries and if the if the swing weight <laughs> if the swing weight is up you you hit something but you don't you don't even know it uh -huh. right you don't you don't <laughs> right. you don't feel anything yeah so the i could see playing feathery golf uh with a with b weighted clubs very I, you could at least feel it right um, once you get into the d's which is maybe a little more common for gutty play yeah yeah, you just uh, you just lose that feel. You don't feel the you don't feel the club coming off the head. Yeah, so. interesting. I still have never hit a feathery. Something I'd like to do. Yeah. So I heard that you recently came into some templates. Could you tell us about that? And um, Chris McIntyre mentioned this to me, and I know you two are good friends. What are the templates, and how are you using them? Well, the the templates were acquired from a new friend, uh, a, 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 a fellow club maker. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he he acquired them, and he's uh, he's been generous enough to send me the PDFs of them, and I would print them out and cut them out in the shop, and and just start start using them. So uh, very fortunate. We have a lot of the a lot of the big names. Okay, now. The big names, everybody knows the big names. And it's, it's really cool that you have the big names because, you know, some guy might not understand if you tell him about a John Jackson, you know, he might not know what you're talking about. But if you mention Hugh Philp or, or uh, um, Douglas McEwen or Robert Forgan, uh, Willie Park, yeah, good chance they'll know. So it, it's, it, it's nice to have the, 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 the more, the, the bigger the bigger makers yeah the bigger makers and but I've also found I uh, some templates that have been I, I always ask tell them see you know send me a long nose I want this and I want that so he'll kind of we'll go through them and he'll send them to me and I've got some templates here that I was unfamiliar with uh, as a club maker right and honestly some of them are the most gorgeous shapes out of all of them. 
And would is uh, is Strath one of them by any chance? No. Nope. No. Okay. For the common person, would a template be similar to a tracing? Is that kind of what it is? It's a three-part template. Right. It will give you the lot. It'll give you the, we call it the hockey stick, the hockey stick shape. Right. So if you're looking at the club uh, face yes. from, uh, from, you know, from, face from on. all yeah. point of view. Yeah. And, and so that, that basically sets your lie angle. Right. And then the other two templates uh, they run off of uh, the soul, off the soul, right? And then the the horn, the length of the horn, or where the horn ended. There's a marking for that, so you can accurately kind of uh, uh, replicate. Mark your, it, yeah. Yeah, the yeah. horn is on the L shape, and the scare is on the L shape. And then when you do that, then when you put your soul template on, you just line up your your horn with your your mark with your mark. Right, and that sets it in place. And the top, uh, the the top template is basically right to the, uh, you know, right to the edge of your toe, and that that connect all the lines after that. Yeah. So the L would determine the height, also of the of the of the of the head. Forget about the scare. Yeah. And the top would determine the width. Yes. And the soul would determine the shape kind of to be simplistic about it. So I know you're now making clubs in various collections. You've referred to this and I saw it on your website. How big is your market these days? I mean, uh, I know you're shipping internationally. That's pretty much uh, most of my customers do come from the United States. Okay. And if you've made, let's say 400 clubs to date, how many of those do you think you've sold? Uh, I would say more more than a hundred. No, no, I, I I go probably 70, 70 clubs. Uh huh. So you have three hundred and some clubs now with you where you live. I actually have le- I have less. Uh, I, I I've been I, I would I would send clubs to people uh, uh-huh. like like out to Chris and. Just send right. them a, a box of clubs and, you know, so those I don't have in my, you know, in my possession any longer, but yeah, in the, in the house and in the shop, I'm probably, I probably got about 200 and 250 mm-hmm. clubs. And you grip all of them, right? Yes. Yeah. And whip them and finish them and do all that. Yeah. That's incredible. What do you th- what do you think it takes to make a club from start to finish? If you had to guess, time wise, yeah, that's a good question too. Uh, I would I would say between six and seven hours uh, of kind of steady, like you know, not waiting for the stain to, to right, to, yeah, right, and glue to cure. Uh, six to seven hours, which uh, you know, there's a lot of processes like if you're doing your shafts from a piece of lumber, right? To turn yeah. it into a, a shaft, that that's time consuming. So, and I love making my own shafts. So I, I wouldn't think of buying my shafts. Right. Um, and that's mostly with a spoke shave? That was, the, I bet you the first <laughs> 300 clubs or so were spoke shaved. And um, now they're on a lathe? Not close, close. They're on a... They're on a, a, a power source that will spin the shaft. Uh-huh. 
And the tool that's used is a trapping plane, which is kind of like a waffle baker, two parts uh -huh. with uh -huh. a hinge, and you have a, uh, yeah. a, a, a cutting iron in there. Right. And you grip the two handles and you al apply pressure and move your trapping plane up and down. Right. Understood. And it, it cuts so much time off yeah. of the, the old shaving horse and the spoke shave. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the accuracy <laughs> is, uh, you know, the accuracy gets is pretty darn good. Uh -huh. so, and where, so if you wanted to source a block of hickory to make, I don't know what, 30 shafts or something, is that hard to source? Uh, believe me, I, before talking with you today, uh, I, I was in my shop most of the afternoon and that's exactly what I'm looking at. I've got clubs coming up right now that are have different head weights. Uh -huh. So I'm gonna need different flexes and shafts because the lighter heads, you know, aren't going to move the shaft as much. And I have more stiff shafts right. out of the out of the the last batch that I uh, that I purchased. I have more stiff shafts than I do, you know, say regular flex. Right. And it, 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 it's a scary, it's a scary, for me, it's scary because I, I love to keep building. And if you run out of headwood or hickory, you're, you can still build heads, but you can't build shafts. So right. shaft, uh, finding hickory is, is difficult in my area, in my province, uh, I, I bring a lot, I bring a lot of it in from uh, Ontario. Mm -hmm. So there's a added cost to, to bring the stuff in. Um, well, what, what, what is, what would a slab look like? I imagine it's a slab, right? Yeah. Of hickory. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a, it's a four quarter, one inch thick rough. It's an eight foot board that we will take down in half. Uh huh. And and then we'll just go through the milling processes to to turn it into a, a long three quarter yeah. inch, inch dowel. So you start with a one inch square. I don't know one, the word could, for it. Could be one inch by you know, one by anything, one by five, right. one by eight, and and then the billets, the billets. When I cut them out, they'll be one by one, and then I can work them, work them down, flatten them out. If there's a little bowl, you know, you can get sure. rid of that, straighten them out, and then mill them down to your three-quarter by three-quarter. Yeah. And then you knock the corners off, and now they're a long dowel. And uh, Let's talk species of wood for a minute. Uh, let's talk club heads first. I'm sure you experiment in different species. How many and what are they? Started with European beech, which was one of the most common woods used mm -hmm. in, in that day. The problem with that was the hardness. Uh, it, it, the ball, the, the, the hard gutty would, would leave impressions on the, on the face. Now to put, a leather, to put a leather insert in all the clubs, that's a lot of work. Mm -hmm. we, would like to, we would like to only do that for people who would like that look. So I had to source out something different. I started using Swiss pear, which was just a phenomenal wood to work with. Durable. I have I have a Swiss pear club that went out to all of my functions. Uh, it, it's been hit probably hundreds of times and run your finger across it. It's it's still smooth. But 
getting Swiss pear in that thickness is, is not easy to get. So I've, uh, I changed gears and I started out uh, a friend of mine, Tim Alpop, he sent me some divot tools and I looked at them and I just kind of dropped what I was doing and I grabbed some scrap material and I started building divot tools. And I had a piece of hard white maple that I was using for the center part on a three-part tool. And I had, uh, I had a bunch of pieces cut out of there, but I had enough for a club. Now it was only, it was only two inches thick, but I thought to myself, hey, you know, maybe I should try making a club out of the hard white maple. So I, I did, I hit a, I, it was a play club because of, it, it didn't have the thickness to get a little loft on it. And I shafted it up and whipped it up and gripped it up, finished her off and took it out. And I, it blew me away. I was hitting the gutty golf ball and I had nothing, nothing on the face. And I thought from that point on, well, we're going to have to source out a piece of hard white maple and we're going to go ahead because I have nothing to lose. If I bought beechwood, I know it's a 70% no good, 30% uh -huh. will be okay. But the hard white maple has been incredible. I, I like to, to, the McIntyre gutty, as everybody who's played it before, it knows how hard that ball is. Yeah, the park ball. I think of it as the park, the park ball. Yeah. 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 And uh, the hard white maple, if if it does dent, it is so minimal that it, it, it's not an issue. And is, it's, hard, is hard white maple native to Canada? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. So it's so the <laughs> so getting it's not a problem. I mean, I still got to bring it in from out of town, like out of province, just because we have suppliers here, but they don't supply to a person like me. And how about shafts? Have you messed around with other woods for shafts? Ash. Yeah, ash is uh -huh. the only other wood I've I've uh, I've used. Is Greenheart something you can get today? Or I have some old clubs that are Greenheart shafts. I don't know how readily available that is. Sourcing out Greenheart would, I'd be at the computer for. Yeah. It's not day. desirable probably anyway, because Hickory proved to be so much more reliable and durable. I, I wish they would have left some journals behind because there's so many questions that are unanswered. Yeah. Uh, you know, and like I said, I, I wish, I, give me, give me 10 minutes, 15 minutes. I would shoot back probably into Robert Forgan's workshop. Yeah. And just let, <laughs> let me walk around. Let That's me not just, much time. Yeah. No, I, I don't, you know, I wish if you gave me more time, I would definitely take it. But if, <laughs> if you gave me just 10 minutes, I, I could walk around and it would be just amazing to see how they, oh, yeah. how they went about it with, you know, no electricity and you know, like, well, and I think they were using animal glue and yeah, yeah, you know, like the, the pots were, you know, there was always heat because they had to the, the hide glue and uh, the lead, you know, you always needed to, to heat the lead up and uh, just and can you imagine, can you imagine those uh coal sheds where they stored all the hickory for oh. a year? Wouldn't it have been cool to see that? I've seen pictures of hickory shafts in sheds. Right. And it's just, it just blows your mind. Like yeah. the, there were companies back then that were pumping out hickory shafts because as a, as I learned more, I, I was, I always thought the club maker kind of did it all, but there was a point in time, maybe they did, but they yeah. couldn't do it all. And, yeah. and, and so shaft producers, they were produ like, 
thousands and tens of thousands of chefs, like, yeah, because they were basically feeding everybody who was building irons, woods. Maybe uh, in the show notes, Kelly, I'll put, I've got some charts that I made once on the, the sheer number of golf clubs that were probably produced before 1900 mm-hmm. based on how many golf clubs, meaning societies there were and how many members there were in those societies. So you can sort of extrapolate how many sets of golf clubs there might've been. By the turn of the century, they were making millions of golf clubs a year. You yeah. Know? yeah, it's, yeah, it's pretty amazing. It so I, I mentioned, I'm gonna go on this trip in October, it, you know, if COVID permits to do yeah. a 15 day trip in Scotland. If somebody wanted to put together a set of just woods and maybe one rut iron, I think that might be possible through you, wouldn't it? That's what I've, I've done that. I, I've done that for me personally. Like, so t- like, tell us what a set would look like. It would have a play club, yep. a brassy, a baffy, yep. a niblick, a wood niblick. Uh, either a baffing, a baffing spoon or a niblick, mm-hmm. one or the other. Uh, there's the, the loft on the two clubs was very similar. Uh-huh. And the, the only niblick I have has a longer head it would be it, it would be nice to f- find that niblick with the shorter head because that was probably the club they used to kind of get out of a you know a little hole or something yeah a wood Those, niblick we're talking about uh, yeah, yeah yeah because the the i have a McEwen wooden niblick and but it's a man it, it, it's it's massive yeah and and it's not the loft on it the length of the head, you're saying this could be a bathing spoon. It, it, right. it, there's really not much that distinguishes it from, you know, a bath or so. Yeah. But and I think on your website, you said 30 degrees is probably the max on a wooden niblick. Yeah. Yeah. That, <laughs> that is a lot of loft on a yeah. wood. I was yeah. speaking with somebody just on the other side of the Atlantic and we were talking about the, maximum loft on a bathing spoon mm-hmm. and I, if you go if you go from the the stages of a, a play club being your let's just say about seven to 12 degrees mm-hmm. and then your long spoon was pretty much 15 degree club and then if then you've got to fill in the the rest where you have the middle spoon, if it can't be 15, probably have to be around 20. And then you have your short spoon. Well, where does that go? Is that a 22 or so you figure that's about 25, which made me think that then the baffing spoon would have been your 30 degree or around there. But all the pictures that I see, I can, I can detect angles and, uh, and loft. And when you sight the clubs, even on a two dimensional picture, I, I'm not seeing that kind of that 30 degree loft. We kind of settled on around 25 degrees for a bathing spoon. So mm-hmm. that sort of mix it, it throws a monkey wrench into my, you know, 15 degree long spoon, 20 mid spoon, 25 short spoon. I don't think there, <laughs> I don't think there was like a a, a rule like the, the, the club makers built clubs for people. They didn't build, uh, you know sets like right idlist and tailormade are doing today right right so a lot of clubs were built for the person and you know length and loft you know are pretty standard but nothing to say that you know a a, a taller person would have had a a baffing spoon that could have been 40 inches long right, right? in length yeah not the typical 30 
you know, 37 to 39. There's just, again, the, the journals, they didn't leave us enough behind to really unwrap or unpack all of this. So we kind of, we kind of go with what we, you know, what we know and, and, and what just seems nor what right, what seems right. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a page in Jeff Ellis's two volume book. And I, I remember, you know, I poured over that book when I first got it and I turned a page and there's a wood niblick in his, the art, the club maker's art. And that's the club of everything in that volume that I fell in love with the most because you don't see them. You just don't see them. Maybe don't see them because they probably weren't a lot of them made. Yeah. That was probably number one. Number two is the way they were designed to be used. They just, not a lot of them probably survived. Right. So let's say that somebody is at St. Andrews and it's 1890 or maybe a little earlier and they have a short spoon in their hand and a gutty ball what kind of distance do you think would be reasonable to expect out of a short spoon? A short spoon? I look at the play club at a at 170 yards. Okay. And then the, the long spoon, that's your, you can kind of get your long spoon 172, right? It's, it's, sure. if, if you hit it, if you hit it just right, you can get it going pretty good. The, the short spoon though, I would probably be comfortable with a, just a, a comfortable swing somewhere in the 125, 130 mm -hmm. gotcha. uh, range. Cool. I just have never held one. So that's, that's why I wanted to ask. Yeah. Your transitional clubs look really cool. You talked about Willie Park earlier. When I looked at the pictures on your website, it looks like those have a really high toe on them. Mm -hmm. And they, yeah. I agree with you. They are, they look so appealing. <laughs> Uh, have you sold many of those or have you had a chance to market your different series very much? Yeah, that, that club was built for a gentleman out in California. Uh huh. He sent me the original club and the, he sent me pictures of it also, which is really cool because the pictures, he said, can you build this? And I look at it and I'm, yeah, yeah I can build that. So they sent the club. When I got it out of the box, poof, throw the pictures in my head out the window because this thing was tiny. It was like, oh, oh it was so small, you know, so narrow. Uh, and it was higher, right? It was a higher, uh, higher face club, uh -huh. but uh, just very narrow. So I built the first club. The, it, was, it's a, it has a brass sole plate on it and they're play clubs. I built the first club as identical as I could to the original. Shaft, whippiness and that. And then I built them, I think, six, six more, mm -hmm. five or six more. And I shipped them all to him. And I said, you know, Rudy, you take them, hit them, hit them all and take the one you like. And he did. Uh, he, he found it. And I believe it was, I believe it was the original one. Mm -hmm. I, I could be wrong, but I think it was the original. And, and then he ended up selling a club uh, to a friend of his who played so that, took one more off of the uh, rack. And then it was just in the November, I think it was November. I get an email from a, from a gentleman in California, broke my wood tournament this weekend. Can you help? <laughs> and so I, I found out where he was. He was in California and uh, I emailed him back. He emailed me back. And then in the evening he said, call me. So I called him and I said, do you know, Rudy? Happen to know Rudy? 
And he goes, yeah, yeah, I know Rudy. I said, well, listen, Rudy's got about five, five or six clubs. Mm. And um, if you can, you, you know, you can talk, I'll give you, I'll give you Rudy's No, you, you can talk to Rudy. And anyways, uh, they dealt the two of them. They dealt with, we, I'm busy uh, summertime or November. We were still working. So I'm doing all this from the, from the bulldozer. Uh -huh. <laughs> and, and anyways, he, uh, uh, he set him up with a, with a, uh, with a club. And at the end of that tournament, uh, it turned out that this gentleman bought the, bought the club. I just said, you know what, just use it. If you like it, you can buy it. If you don't like it, just sure. give it back to Rudy. Right. And as it turned out, Rudy sold, well, that club was sold and there were two other people that he borrowed clubs to and they were sold also. Yeah. So Rudy really kicked off uh, something pretty amazing in that month of November and it carried on right, right through to, uh, to, to January where I was getting I'm more orders than, than I ever have. Yeah. So, that's cool. Yeah. Also talk about the clan putters. I don't know what those are, but they look beefy and they look really cool. They are. I did not know. I did not know about them until Rudy mentioned it. And Rudy sent me the original. He had mm -hmm. purchased one and he wanted a, wanted one built. So is clan somebody's name? No, uh, clan golf company. They were only around for about four years. Mm-hmm. And then I believe Spalding, I think Spalding bought them. So the, the Clan Golf Company, I believe they were in England. And then they were bought by Spalding. I don't know much about the history of the company, uh -huh. except the fact that they weren't around very long. But the putter, that's a really cool putter. And believe it, his putter, whether it did or didn't, it had a St. Andrews band in it. Mm -hmm. and, and it had... It had another bend. It had a double bend, which when you actually address a ball with it, I thought, wow, does this ever feel like, feel like you can keep the path, you know, the head path through the ball so much easier. So that's how I built them. I, I put a St. Andrews mm -hmm. bend and then I put a bend where, where it kicked the, it, it kicked the face and the handle outward. Right. And Rudy, when I talk to him, Rudy just loves it. So if you unbox one of these clubs from somebody who sends you one, is the first thing you do reach for calipers? The first thing that I look at is, is the, the size, the size yeah. of the head. Like the, not the, and it happens so fast, right? It's the size of the head. It's the, it's the doming of the club. It's the, the, the way the toe is angled. Like this happens in like in less than two seconds, right? Right. It's right. so it, it's so quick, but it's the size. It's the size of the club because pictures. You take pictures of clubs, and I know this for a fact. There's picture angles that you can take, mm -hmm. and it looks like the neck of your golf club is like is massive, but it's not. Just the way the camera is sort of catching that angle. Yeah. You have to turn it to find that. The, the actual, to, not so that it looks thinner than it is, but to where it looks normal. And that's the, that's why the size of the club is the most, is, is the number one thing I look at because every picture always seems to make the club bigger than mm -hmm. it actually is. Right. Interesting. 
So Kelly, uh, have there been some print sources that you've found the most useful? My friend who has the templates, Elmer, he has more books. He's more historian than I am. So he will open up his books and, you know, he'll send me pictures and uh, if I have questions. Uh, so I kind of cheat a little bit like that, but I do yeah, need, that's a, okay. you know, I do need a few more, few more resources here because, you know, just, there might be that one picture, right? That one picture in a book that it's just the, the light switch will flip, right? It's like, right. oh God, really? Is that, <laughs> you know, so. Can you talk a little bit about Chris McIntyre? He's the one that got me introduced to you a, a number of years ago. And I think he was trying to help you in terms of guidance. And, uh, you know, obviously he sort of pioneered the replica gutty balls. How did you two connect and how did Chris help you along the way? Well, whatever I say uh, probably won't be enough. Chris, he's the reason I'm where I am right now. Mm -hmm. Now, with <laughs> Don't, don't take that out of, out of context. I mean, I, where I am right now, that doesn't mean I'm anywhere, you know, I'm, I'm just, my club building started at, at mile one. Right. And if it wasn't for Chris, I would probably be building guitars or fiddles or something. I, you know, Chris was there. Did I you find him, did you find him originally because of the ball? No, it was a, it was just a general hickory, just a general hickory search, right? Like uh -huh. I need some information on this stuff. And actually, I think before Chris, I, I reached out to Randy Jensen. Sure. And I, I can remember on the first club I built, I did reach out to Randy Jensen and Randy sent me, you know, he answered a few questions for me. Uh, and then after that, when I did contact Chris and Chris answered me back and then we probably had a phone call and he's just been, you know, we talk once a month mm -hmm. uh, on the phone and just, he's just been like, he's been, I've been his apprentice in a way, right? Like I, I got a, I have a problem in the shop uh, with a club and I'm not sure of something. I would reach out to him. He would give me some answers, some options. And to this day, 15 years later, he's still, he's yeah. still, uh, he still answers the phone when I call him on a yeah, Saturday morning or Sunday morning. And we have, uh, we usually have some pretty interesting talks and I love building them. Uh, I built him a set of uh, Tom Morris clubs because, you know, he's, he was yeah. growing the old, uh, <laughs> the old Tom, Tommy beard. And so, yeah, I built him a, a, a Morris play club of a sh short spoon and uh, there's another club in there and then a putter, not a mm -hmm. horse putter. But anyway, I owe a lot. I owe a lot to Chris. And he's, yeah. uh, he's been a fantastic, uh, fantastic friend. He's been generous to me, too. You know, when I first thought I wanted to learn about gutty golf, Chris shipped me a set of maybe six clubs, one replica wood, which I believe was an original Tad Moore replica that aren't any made anymore. Yep. I tried like the Dickens to buy that club from him, but he wouldn't sell it to me, <laughs> which is what led me to you. Uh, and I also tried to buy the irons he sent me. He sent me some gorgeous, very early, very heavy gutty clubs with thick hosels. Yeah. And uh, it, it woke me up to what gutty golf could really be. You know, I think a lot of guys are playing with 
circa 1900 smooth face clubs and they think that it's gutty golf, but it's actually, that's modern golf before dot punches and lines were put on the face. The real gutty clubs, as Chris knows, are very heavy, probably blacksmith made. Yeah. Thick hosels, very heavy, very long handles. Uh, And from that day on, I've been collecting those clubs and um, it's such a joy to play with them. Yeah, and for the listeners' sake, Gutty is roughly in the 1840s. That's when it really came into being and lasted probably until the 1890s, maybe. Late, yeah. Haskell, Haskell Ball came in around then. And, uh, but I've played your club. You seemed a little surprised the other day when I told you that uh, I've used the park ball, of course. But, and I've used the mesh ball also with these clubs, mm-hmm. uh, which I believe is really a Wilson 50 core something like that. But I've also used the Wilson Duo Spin, which is a fairly low compression ball. And I've had so much fun. And your club has stood up perfectly for the last, what has it been, seven or eight years. (laughs) And that's amazing because I could remember, I could remember, I could remember selling you the club. And I had no idea, because remember, we're five, even five years ago. God, I I mean, I, I, I knew so much less five years ago than I do today. (laughs) So I I just expected you're buying, you're buying a long nose club. You're going to be playing with the gutty golf ball. Right. And, and then when I, when I heard, I think it was through Chris, he mentioned, I I mentioned your name. I mentioned you bought a club and, uh, and, and then the ball came up. So not that you weren't playing with a gutty, but you were also playing with the, modern day or like a modern day low compression right original or replica and it and i was like what <laughs> <I couldn't laughs> and and i i was just like eddie hasn't called me yet like that that he needs another club i couldn't believe it so you were actually your club when i heard about that it it sort of changed my uh, outlook on all all the clubs that i build and hey wait you know, they, they can be used with gutty, but these things are pretty tough too. And yeah, you're, for sure. you're, you're giving up the hardness for softness, which is nice for the club face. Right. But then you're gaining the weight, that extra weight of the modern ball, which is like eight to 10 grams heavier. Mm. So now you've got, you've got a lot more. When you hit that golf ball, you've got your head kicking you got your shaft kicking like who knows what's going to happen but i i do hit i do after hearing this i i have hit a lot of my clubs with the modern day low compression golf balls right and i'm really shocked at how like how they do stand up i, I wouldn't do it with all of them some of them are just sure. you know but for the most part the 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 templates aren't as um there are some beefy clubs out there. There, mm-hmm. there were some makers like McEwen. Uh, he's got some of his templates, man. They, they are big templates. Mm. Kelly, do you get into much custom work or engraving or presentation clubs? Is there much of that for you? Yeah, the the custom just since Rudy's uh, since Rudy's little little selling spree, uh, there have been quite a few requests for long nose club to be used specifically with a modern day mm-hmm. golf ball. So I, I consider those custom because I don't feel, I don't feel a hundred percent comfortable grabbing a true long, like a 
true long nose that I built for uh, a gutty play. Right. And uh, selling it as a, uh, a low compression player. Yeah. So I'm building uh, probably got half a dozen, six or seven, at least six or seven, seven for sure, that are meant solely for that. And then they say, well, we, I might use them for, for gutty play too. Sure. But if they can, if they can handle the one, they can handle the gutty. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, but pres and presentation clubs, I haven't, I haven't been contacted, um, you know, uh, but mm -hmm. any club is, can be a presentation club, right? right? It's right. Just, uh, but I, that's not, that hasn't been a big, a big thing for me. Yeah. I would suggest to listeners out there for all the Hickory groups and, and Kelly, we've got listeners in 17 or 18 different countries. They make great trophies, you know, yeah. you can, you can mount it on a piece of wood that hangs on a wall and then the club can be horizontal with a plaque, you know, they can be a great trophy that you can pass down through the years. Yeah. Which yeah. could be a nice market for you for your lower end clubs, you know? Yeah. It, yeah. It, I mean, it, anything, everything I build is meant for hitting. Yeah. Right. Like they, they're all meant for play. There's no, if you want to hang it on your wall, that's, that's up that's your prerogative right, right you can right. do that but if you want to take it out and play it go right ahead yeah so any club that i have here could easily be turned into a presentation club it's not carved or the you know like the old uh, the McEwen and the and the uh, philp they did the carving the presentation club right uh i don't i don't i don't go my friend does that i don't do that but you know they're just they're just so dang cool looking that yeah you know, you can put them on a put them on a background, and and here you go. You won the tournament, or your yeah. team won the tournament. Yeah, uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk, if you would, talk us through. You have a template. You get some beech wood, let's say, and you make that first rough cut. And so you've got kind of a blocky piece of wood. Can you just talk us through the basic steps from that point forward? Okay. So kind that, of in the kind of in the order that you would do them. Yep. Okay. So that that first cut would be made on the bandsaw. Right. After that, this uh, sand the club down to the line. We'll we'll leave a bit of the line. You know, a, a perimeter of the club. We'll leave uh -huh. uh, we'll leave the line. We'll take it and I'll sand it because it's just quicker. Once it's sanded, then I can tr transfer my my marks, my horn uh, my horn length, and my scare, and then I can trace the two other templates they go to the bandsaw and from the top of the toe all the way up to the top of the neck i'll cut that out i can't cut the toe out because there's an angle there so i'll just take my mm -hmm. rasp mm -hmm. so once that's cut out then it's into the vise and a rasp and i blend the toe in with the with, like the where the where the face runs out and the toe starts right i'll connect those two lines and i'll work my way around the around the back of the club and then you gradually uh get into finer files more more files no no more rasps more files and sandpaper so you're you're giving that club the shape that you want because right. once i get the shape i put it on the scale and i weigh it and i don't wait and can i interrupt you again so far you have not cut anything out of the face and you haven't cut the splice. Nope. 
Okay, keep going. Keep yeah. Going. <laughs> yeah, you know, I need I need all I need my number before I do any of that. Now that's just the way I do it. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, the club is uh, very close to finished, as in the look of the club. Now there's no there's no accessories added yet. Right. I weigh it. Once I weigh it, uh, a document that weight. So then I know I kind of already think it ahead. Okay, this is a long spoon. The I got 125 grams of weight. I'm going to lose for this for the scare joint. I'm going to you know lose. Well, you don't lose much for the cavity because you kind of fill it back in mm-hmm. with heavier material. Uh, so everything else after that's just a walk. You kind of just you know right. your horn cut your horn goes in some wood comes out you don't lose exactly. much right yeah so that's where that's where that 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 first weigh in and then after that i can uh go ahead and uh re- look through my look through my notes to see the size of cavity i need to put in mm-hmm. how deep it needs to be how long it needs to be and i have lots of clubs that have the different length, like different length shafts. So different clubs, different, they started out at different weights, but it's pretty, you know, I find one 120 grams. I'm building one, I'm at 125. So I can work with that. It's, it's five grams difference. I just know I can tweak my, I don't need the lead cavity to be as big it can be a little bit smaller or it needs to be a little bit bigger depending on what that club sh- uh, showed up as uh, a finished swing weight mm-hmm. so then the lead would go in but wait uh, you carve that back at, with a chisel or how do you carve that 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 space uh start with a saw and i'll cut mm-hmm. a i'll cut a v right and then i use a gouge and i'll right. gouge out the so you don't you don't end up uh damaging that the, the, two, the top and the bottom edge yes. so these are like japanese tools kind of uh, japanese gouges or wood gouge like you would use yeah. for wood carving yeah that's right yeah there's there's many different types of gouges that that'll work it dep- I, I have one and i just i make it work yeah uh for for what i for what i need to do um, and then do you drill uh, angled cavities for the lead so that it stays in the head? Yeah, good question. Over the past, I'd say two and a half weeks, three weeks, I've actually been intersecting mm. the two mm-hmm. holes. Or yeah. the, there's four, total of four, but two intersect and then the other two intersect. I had an issue with a, a club a customer, uh, bought, uh, bought some clubs. And the uh, the lead started just pop, popping out at the at the back of the club, which is which is common. It can yeah. happen. Uh, so even though they're threaded, I'll tap the I'll tap them. That gives a little bit of uh, the lead. Purchase, a, yeah. yeah, yeah. But then I thought to myself, you know, I know they did intersect on some clubs, so I started intersecting them. And I haven't hit any of them yet because we're, we're still in winter. Yeah. But the, the knock test, when I knock on the club, uh, it's been, it's been week, like a couple weeks and that, that lead is still in there. So, uh, but the, 
the the lead is anchored in there really well. Do you do the you pour the lead before you cut the scare? Yep. Oh, you yep. do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So then it would and, be. And wait, wait. Where do where do you get your lead? What is the source of the lead? I've used fishing weights. I've melted down fishing weights, but yeah. I, I don't imagine that's what you're doing. No, I I've actually the first the the first batch of lead I brought in was 25 pounds, and it came from Hamilton, Ontario. Mm -hmm. And I used it, and I I used it, and I had one one uh, what do you call it ingot it left or half ingot left, mm -hmm. and I'm like I gotta find some lead. So I called around and uh, locally here just some uh, uh, relative and had got a piece from him. I ended up going to a uh, uh, a recycling place. They they'll they'll take all metals and that. Mm -hmm. And they were, uh, they, they had lead and I was picking up this block lead. Uh, they were in blocks, right? Not sheet or, you know, and is, this is an interesting story. So I have, I have, you know, documentation of weight and everything. So all those clubs that I made with the lead that came from Hamilton, I had numbers. The first club I made where I used the lead that came from uh, this recycling place, cut the same cavity, I did the same holes, poured the lead. When it cooled, I took off the, the putty and I, I uh, put it on the scale. Just, yeah, I, I pour mine with a perimeter dam. So right. my lead will be protruding out of the back of the club by you know, half, three quarters of an inch. Right. When I put that on the scale, because I always do that, I'll just put it on the scale. It'll be like a crazy number. I put it, and I'm like, whoa, what? what what's going on? <laughs> this is like, it's like 100 grams heavier than the, wow. yeah. So then I went and I trimmed it down and I started filing it, getting it to shape. And I, and I mean, I was like, whew, I was in the Fs, right? Like, I mean, this thing yeah. was. Yeah. So when you say fishing weight, uh, if you ha if that's what you have uh, to use, you use what you have. I was lucky enough to get multiple orders. I probably about three or four, and I'll buy twenty to twenty to thirty pounds at a, at a time. Mm -hmm. And this stuff is like heavy, so you can you can get away with a, a shallower cavity than if you were using a lead that had different alloys and right. mixed in with it. So uh, the day that I run out of that stuff is the day that, you know, I do a golf club and I'm like on the other end of the swing weight right. scale or, right. you know, but um, yeah. So. Okay. So you've poured the lead, you've shaped the basic head. You still haven't done the face or the horn or the scare. No, nope. no, nope. not yet. No. Nope. The, actually, the, my my lying here by saying that the the face no the, the the face actually the face yeah the face could be done before the lead mm -hmm. because yeah you know what I I'm sorry that's my mistake the the face is done because when I get that initial weight of a right. finished shaped club the face has to be off of it that's right, right. Gotcha. and then then the lead sorry to anybody listening that the club has to be as close to finished as possible. Mm -hmm. And that means the face gets put on it 
and then the lead gets poured. Right, but not the horn. Nope, I'll just work it from that point. So I'll document the weight. So I have all, I have the, the, the length, the depth and the width of the cavity, the anchor holes, the screws I use to tap the hole. The, sometimes it's a different screw, right? And mm -hmm. so I have a pretty accurate uh, recollection of, or, or, or um, record of, uh, you know, of that, of that process. So then the, then the club gets flipped, uh, flipped over. I will lay out my horn slip and I actually have a method that I, I created here. It's just a router and a template with a guide bushing and that is a tough task to do by hand. I don't, I don't envy that. I will do one by hand before I die, but for product, like for producing clubs yeah. and the accuracy, uh, this is a, a really, a really good way to do it. Yeah. And I'm following can, you. Yeah. I can, and you know, everything, everything touches, you know, the, not the power tool at some point. But the percentage, the percentage of work that's done with something that's plugged into the wall, as opposed to something that's generated by your, you know, hands and arms, is about 2080. Yeah. Okay. There's 80% of it is is handwork. It's handwork. We, if Tom Morris. If uh, he might have at the end of his end of his career, it's hard to say. But if Tom Morris had an easier way of carving out a horn slip, he would have done it. Oh, of course, yeah. right? And and so that that's that's what I do. So I'll I'll lay it out, and it probably from start to finish, it's probably a probably a fifteen minute process, and then it's just a matter of uh, uh, shaping the you know shaping it to fit, roughing up the horn and uh, getting it glued in there. And you, so, and you, have you drilled the horn for the dowels or does that come at the end? That comes at the end. Yeah, and where do you source your horn? Oh, that's the easiest. <laughs> you oh. would think that would be the hardest. Uh, my, my horn comes from a company. I don't know, do you, would you like to hear the name of it or? Oh, it doesn't uh, matter, it's up to you. They, they're, uh, they've been, uh, I used to do my own horn, I used to, use cow horn i used to bury it in the garden mm. and let the let the little insects eat it all eat all the cartilage out uh -huh. and then boil it up in the barbecue in a big pot and then flatten it in a vice i used to do all that it was fun but it took a lot of work it, it was a lot of work so now i i did source out uh, a horn supplier and i've been getting my horn from them for for probably 10 to 12 years. And is it cow horn? Is that what it is? Uh, I get ram's horn from them. Uh -huh. I'll get uh, buffalo, water buffalo horn. And I've used buffalo horn and what I found, I've only done it once, but what I found was, boy, it smells, man. If oh. you heat, once it heats up, boy, it smells. You heated yours up? Well, just by, I think the heating was from either rasping it or uh -huh. sanding it. You know. Oh yeah, yeah. Would you uh, would you put the would you hit it with a file? Yeah. Or a bandsaw, like if you're exactly just cutting it. Right. Yeah. No, no. The the smell is not. Uh, 
it's not pleasant. Yeah. And, and it's not, I don't think it's, I don't think it's great either. It's not something that you want to be. Right. No, the I'm, only good, the only good thing about it is it, I guess if you can smell it, it's, it's real. It's airborne, right? Yeah. 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 Right. That's true. But it, but it's not, it, 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 I don't think it's, uh, I think you'd have to be doing horn cutting day in and day out for, right. Yeah. For, for there to be a danger. For it to okay, be. So uh, you got the horn on, you got the lead in. Yep. Uh, then once that's all, uh, once that's all uh, cooked and I'll file the lead and blend it in with the, with the, uh, with the face and the toe, you know, mm -hmm, blend mm -hmm, that in. Mm -hmm. And then I'll put the horn pegs, the three horn pegs, I'll lay out for that. That'll go in. And then they get sawed off and then it'll get a filing. The sole of the club will get another filing and, and maybe hit, you know, maybe some sandpaper, just uh, if, if there's any scratches or something. I'm not too, I'm not too worried about leaving some tool marks behind on my club. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I, I think that that is uh, that's a good sign that the club actually came from a man's hand and not right. a machine's hand. Right. Um, even though guys who use duplicating lathes and to create that, they're still don't don't mistake it. There's still a lot of handwork. Oh yeah, that goes into it. So, but when you do it by hand, uh, you know you maybe you don't switch to the right file in, in at the right point. So right. you know you might have. But I, I love that. I, I love that. It's 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 if it's your club, it's 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 identification, right? Yeah. And uh, your your club has it, and some guy, someone else buys a club for me. They they may have it somewhere else, but it'll yeah. never be in the same place or the same type of marking. So it's kind of like a fingerprint. Um, so once that's once that's um, uh, the sole is sanded and filed to the point, then it goes uh, it goes on the weigh scale again, and I just make just confirm where I'm at. And I know when I cut my scare, I'm going to be losing about, you know, 15 to 20, depending on the size of the neck, 15 to 20 grams. So I've accounted for that with how much lead I've left behind. And then it goes into the, the scare will go on the club, on the neck of the club. And is that, is the scare cut on a uh, band saw or a table saw or uh, a sander or how do you do that? Yeah. Uh, Two methods. Uh, for the longest time, I have a, 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 a sliding jig that works with my table saw. Right. So I will uh, line it up on the angle and, and right. clamps and blocks and, and cut her through. And I also purchased a, uh, a, a jack plane so I can do it by hand. Sometimes when you do very loft, like a baffing spoon, Sometimes to get the club to sit flat on the on the sliding table, uh, it's pretty tough. It, it wants to tilt, so you mm -hmm. wedge it up, and you. So I decided, you know what? I'm going to pick up a good hand to a good hand plane, and I, I can do it by I can do it by hand. I'm still getting comfortable with that right. technique, uh, but I'm um, I'm working at it. And that splice is probably what two inches, maybe, in length. No, they 
probably no no they they'd longer than that uh-huh. for i would say a, a good average is probably four to four and a quarter okay yeah and then you glue it up to the shaft and you clamp it i imagine i wrap it actually i've seen that yeah a lot of people wrap it yeah i i use a again not a probably not a material they had back then but i use a surgical tubing mm-hmm. uh it, it just allows you to as you as you wrap it um if you have a if you have they, they always it's been said you can you can sort of hollow out the, the the scare on the neck of the club so then when you go mm. to pull them together you have like a compression fit uh so with the with the uh, surgical tubing when I start, I can really, I can really pull her down and then get her up. And then it, it, it's almost like a, a vice or a, a little seat clamp every time you go around. Exactly. Right. And I, I just, again, you, 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 I've been doing that for many, many years now. I used to use C clamps, but then this proved to be a, a better way to do it. Yeah. This so. is 360 degrees of pressure. Yes, exactly. Yeah, almost yeah. like a like a pipe clamp, right? Like when guys are fixing their uh, split shafts, uh-huh. they'll put a pipe clamp or you know something. Right, that right, will... right, right. Yeah. So this and is uh, you let that dry overnight, probably. Yeah, I, I never I never rush like I never rush that. Yeah. Like if I did it at ten in the morning, and if I'm out in the shop at six or eight at night. I would then take it out and probably start filing the uh, uh, filing the, the the neck and shaping the mm-hmm. you know making it all you know uniform right uh, but yeah I do not rush that I do not like I do not like pushing that because that's a that's that's a very important step right there it, it right. Needs, I mean and the glue does cure fast enough and the first thing I do I take the the, the surgical tubing off and I grab the head and I grab the shaft. And I give it a good bend, you know, and so far I haven't separated a head from a shaft. So right. it's a, it's a strong joint. It's amazing how strong it, you would never think it, uh, do what it does right. without, without dis, uh, you know, just exploding. Right. Okay. Yeah. So after the scare is shaped and refined, you're ready for finishing. Yeah. Now I find I'll treat the shaft with both pine tar mm-hmm. and, uh, Ashvaltum varnish. It's my favorite. It is great on like on shafts, even on heads. It's a, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's a great finish. Uh, so I'll hit the uh, I'll hit the shaft with the Ashvaltum varnish and then wipe it dry, and put it in my rack in my little vertical rack, and mm-hmm. then I'll I always treat the heads with the oil. The first the first thing that'll hit the head is either uh, a boiled linseed oil or a tongue oil mm-hmm. and most of the time two i'll hit it with two coats it does two things the oil the oil oil acts as a hardener now this is something that takes many years for 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 it to happen it's not a overnight or uh, next week or next month but i like to put the oil on it on the maple because maple's very very finicky when it comes to stains it can it can be very um uneven Mm -hmm. i find that the oil or even a shellac but the shellac i don't get the hardening benefit from that 
but it does the same thing. It kind of seals the pores. It gives you a, a, a nicer finish. So, so the oil goes on to the head, not the shaft, just the head. And that'll uh, cure. And then it depends what type of finish I want to put on it. There's a gel finish, oil, like just, a, just a, any finish you could find at your Home Depot or right. any store like that. Or you can get a little fancier with um, a kind of a layering finish where you would do the oil, like I told you, and then a gel stain, and then shellac, and then gel stain could be a different color, different tone, mm. and then shellac. And you're doing this like one after the other, right? It's just, this isn't like come back the next day. It's like mm. you start it and you finish it. And by gosh, can you ever build up a, a, a beautiful finish? Like you, you actually, looks like you can see into it. Right. Neat. It, it's a fantastic, fantastic finish. And it's, it's a, but you can only achieve certain tones with that. Uh-huh. Right, because you're limited to your different types of gel stains. So if you want something like the Willie Park, which was a darker kind of dark, like the putter was a darker putter. Well, that you gotta, you gotta go a whole different route with that. You can't do it the same way, but I like having the ability to have a lighter head, uh, uh, maybe reddish, brownish Mm -hmm, reddish, mm -hmm. right to the kind of the deep chocolatey brown so, and then anything sort of, you know, swatches in between there, you know? Right. Could you tell us, I'm just curious about this. When you put a brass sole plate on a club, does it start with a flat piece of brass? Yeah. Yeah. I, I just got my, <laughs> I just got a piece of brass shipped in from Tennessee. Uh-huh. Believe it or not, just before the storm hit. And uh, so I received it. Yep. It's just sheet brass. Yeah. Uh, uh, this is 18, 18 gauge and you cut out your rough, like a, your rough footprint of the sole on the brass. Give yeah. yourself enough room because you know, you, you need, <laughs> yeah, I'm, just, you I'm just looking at mine. Yeah. And yeah. I, I can see, do you have to curve it at all? Yes. Yeah. Or I imagine it's soft enough to curve once you screw down. No, no, you have to cur- you have to shape the brass uh-huh. before you put screws in. Before you start drilling and counterboring, uh-huh. you have to have it bent. And that's I, I, I was doing that this afternoon with a, with a club in the shop, and you know sometimes this is a different thickness of brass. Have never worked with this before, mm-hmm. but it's better because it's a little bit heavier. When you bend it, it tends to really like it holds that form. Right. And then when you and because it's a little thicker, when you put your screw in, uh, you can actually kind of pull that pretty tight. Right. But but brass sole plates they can be a nightmare. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, they. Uh, this one is proving to be uh, <laughs> a, a, a a bit of a nightmare. But brass uh, is sandable on the edges, right? Yeah. Or or at least you can file it or whatever to do, smooth it down. The, I think the whole technique there is you get the, you you can get it down to about a, a a 16th or no more than an eighth of an inch, probably a 16th would be good. And then get it with your file. And Uh as you're filing it, you're pushing it towards the sole, right? Right. And 
that heats up the brass. Like the brass gets brass gets warm, <laughs> and it actually it starts to make the if if you have a little bit of a gap where it's not perfect, that uh, that's usually enough to pull that hmm. brass. Interesting. Yeah, tight to cool. the sole. You, you don't have any magic tips on grips, right? Grips are pretty straightforward, I imagine. Pretty much. Um, you use friction tape underneath? I do. Uh -huh. I, use, I use friction tape. And you cut your own leather, probably. Leather, yeah, leather's cut. I like to, if I can, if I can get uh, underlisting, I'll use mm -hmm. a felt underlisting. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> what I find the felt underlisting does is it gives that grip a little bit of sponginess. Right, like, like so, just a little bit, so that you're uh, you feel like you got more grip. Yeah, I've you, used felt too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll you'll notice that that sponginess is a uh, is a is very key because if you just use tape, which it would be almost like the wood, right? Because yeah, as you build up firm. the tape, right. it's firm. Yeah, if there's no compression or minimal. Uh, when you use the, the felt, you get that bit of compression. Right. And what I found, a little tip, a little tip to all the uh, suede out hickory players, uh, if you're having issues with your, with your tackiness, is run down to your, mu your nearest musical store that sells instruments and pick yourself up a little piece of rosin. Right. And uh, usually comes, it can come with a wooden backer and just pop that thing in your golf bag. And when you feel be within the round, <clears throat> your grip might be, you know, getting a little bit, little bit slick, just take it out and give it a, give it a rub, uh, you know, all the way around. Like, God, it, it's incredible. I like to work with my clients. I talk with them on the phone. I give them updates. I check up to see how the club is performing. Uh, you know, if if after two shots a club breaks, uh, I'll own that. Yeah, you want the customer to be happy. Yeah. Within reason, yeah. yeah. Exactly, but that's the relationship I think I build with my customers. They they tell me the truth, I tell them the truth. There's a, there's a lot of new, uh, new Hickory players. Uh, probably by the time we're old and probably can't can't swing a club anymore. I, I'd be really interested to see how the how the hickory uh, community uh, grows. Yeah, because it's growing. It's a totally different game. If you if you think your modern hickory is a challenge, then just tee up a long nose right. and a nutty and. Uh, <laughs> And, and, and have fun because <laughs> don't worry about carrying a scorecard <laughs> right. at first. But uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, both of them are a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, stay well, Kelly, and thanks again for your time. <laughs>